All right, take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8. Often when we think of salvation, we think in terms of justification only. The idea that as we come to God, we recognize we're sinners, we recognize the need for a Savior, and so we uh, pray, we ask God to save us, and at that moment, we are saved. When we think in terms of justification, and so often when we ask, are you saved, that's what we think about. But the reality is salvation is so much more. There is this all-of-life aspect to salvation. And as we worked through this chapter in Romans 8, this incredibly glorious chapter, Paul presents for us the amazing benefits of a relationship with Christ through faith. That it's more than simply getting out of hell, although that is spectacular. There are some real-life, everyday, all-of-life benefits that come with this relationship with Christ. And as we recognize these benefits, it changes the way we look at life. You know this, and I know this, that the world is a broken place. We struggle through life, whether it's relational struggles or economic and financial struggles or physical struggles, health issues. We recognize That the world is broken. But salvation is the answer. The gospel is the answer to all those struggles. And as we look at these amazing benefits, we begin to see just how this is the case. And when we understand and preach the gospel to ourselves, it changes our outlook in life. And so as we look at this chapter, we see some amazing benefits and the glory of God's amazing grace. So let's look again. Romans chapter 8, this should be our last look at the first 17 verses. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, 
But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. In this text, as we have seen, we discover three amazing results of our relationship with God through faith. And over the past few weeks, we've examined the first two of these amazing benefits. The first was that we are no longer under condemnation. We will stand before God and be declared not guilty. No matter our sin, all our struggles, we will stand before God and He will declare us perfect. What an incredible reality. And we we recognize that the law condemns us. We see that we don't deserve this, but Christ, through the cross and his sacrifice on our behalf, freed us. He took on flesh and, and endured everything that we face, was tempted in all ways that we are yet without sin, suffered, and he became a sin offering for us took our place on that cross, 1 Corinthians 5 tells us he literally became our sin so that he could make us righteous. And the result is that when you stand before God, you will not be declared guilty. You'll not be under condemnation, although we justly deserve it. We'll be declared innocent. It leads to the second amazing benefit in verses 7 through 11, that we can please God because of the Holy Spirit. We understand that those in the flesh, those who are not children of God, those who have not come to Christ in faith, cannot please God. Even the good you do are like used rags. There is nothing you can do to please God in and of yourself. Because we are depraved sinners. However, those in the Spirit please God. You now have the ability to please your Creator. And what this means is that when you stand before God, because with the Spirit you please Him, one day you will stand before Him and He will say to you, Well done. God is proud of you. As his child, as we will see in a moment, God is proud of you. What an incredible reality. That in spite of our foibles, in spite of our sins, in spite of our mistakes, God is proud of you as his children. But that brings an obligation, as we saw, that we are to mortify or put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are to fight sin. We are to live for God. And each and every day we fight this battle to overcome sin until the day that he comes and eradicates it completely. And through our relationship with Christ, we are no longer under condemnation and we can please God because we have the Spirit of God. This brings us then to the third benefit. This is the foundation of all the other benefits found in verses 17, uh, 12 through 17. We are children of God. Let's look at these five verses. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are made children of God, and with this, this brings three amazing results. First, we are adopted as children. Because we have the Spirit of God in us, we are the sons of God. Last week, we discussed the amazing reality that we can please God because we're no longer in the flesh. We have life through the Spirit, and so we should mortify or put sin to death. And we can do this because we have the Spirit in us. And those who have the Spirit in them, he says, are the children of God. This gives us the motivation to mortify the flesh. This gives us the motivation to say no to sin. We seek to please God because we are his children. We bear his name. As we discussed Chapter 6, we discovered the fact that we are slaves to Christ. We belong to Him. However, here Paul reminds us that this slavery to Christ is different than any other slavery. We've not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We don't fear sin. We don't have to fear condemnation. We don't need to fear death. This world is a slave to sin, which results in fear. Our world fears. It fears death. We saw this in an incredible way in the last two years in particular. Our world fears death. We do everything we can to avoid and postpone death. And we can understand Because for most of the world that does not believe in God, that does not believe that there is anything beyond this life, death is it. It's over. It's the end. So they fear it. They do all they can to avoid it. Our world fears the unknown. Fear what we can't control. They fear what they don't know. They live in fear. Our Our world fears the loss of power. They fear a loss of control. The moment they can't control what's going on, they fall into fear. And this is a problem because we understand that the world is filled with death. And the world is filled with the unknown. And the world certainly is filled with things we can't control. And if you have no hope, When you fall into this fear, it leads only to despair. Because what do you do when you lose control and you believe there is nothing in control? What do you do when you fear the unknown and you believe that it's all random? What do you do when death is coming for you and you believe nothing comes after? They live in absolute despair. 
In chapter 1, we looked at the way that society degrades as it turns away from God and turns to a worship of self, an exaltation of itself. And over the past century, we have moved from the truth of God to the self. Feelings being the ultimate determiner of right and truth. Why do we need to refer to you in a certain way? Because I feel that way. And everything is about self. But that leads to absolute despair because the self is broken. And so they live in fear. And to cover despair, the slavery to sin... Culture seeks to anesthetize itself, to make it so it doesn't feel that despair and that sin anymore. And so we see a turning to sex and drugs and alcohol and entertainment and fun and anything that can distract us from the despair of life. However, for the believer, it's different. We didn't receive the spirit of fear. We don't have to fear everything that's taking place around us. We don't have to watch the news and live in fear about all that is happening. We don't have to live in fear of sin. Excuse me. We don't have to live in fear of the future. All because we've received the spirit of adoption. Our Father's in charge. We have been adopted into the family of God, the one who spoke everything into existence, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, the one who controls every step of every aspect of every life. And as we'll see later in the chapter, conducts all things for our good and his glory. And so we have not received the spirit of fear. Instead, we have received the spirit of of adoption. The Holy Spirit confirms that we have been adopted by God and are now his children. Now true, we're still slaves of Christ, John Stott tells us, and of righteousness, but these slaveries far from being incompatible with freedom are its essence. Freedom, not fear, now rules our lives. He show me a Christian who's living in fear. Who's afraid of the future? Who's afraid of who might get voted into office? Who's afraid of getting ill? Who's afraid of death? Who's afraid of financial ruin? Who's afraid of this life? I'll show you a Christian that has lost sight of their God. Because God did not give us the spirit of fear. Instead, God has given us the spirit that leads to adoption. Consider what this adoption means. God chose you to be a part of his family. In natural birth, you choose to have a child, but you don't get to choose anything beyond that. But in adoption, you choose the child. God chose you to be his child. He'll not forget you. He'll not leave you. He'll not forsake you because he chose you. Ephesians 1 verse 5, he says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So why would we return to this world? 
to living for this world. The story is told of a king traveling through his kingdom one day. As he traveled through his capital city, his royal carriage passed a corner where there was a young man. And every day that young man sat on that corner begging, dressed in rags, hoping to get enough to buy food for that day's meal. And that day as the king saw him, he took pity on him. His heart yearned for him and loved him. So he stopped the carriage and he invited that young man in. And he began the process and within a few days he had adopted that young man as his child. He took him out of his rags and he dressed him in royal clothes. He gave him access to the royal riches. A room in the royal castle. A few days after all this took place, the king was walking through the castle and he asked one of his soldiers there, Have you seen my son? He said, I saw him leaving earlier today. I think he's back on the corner. The king went back to that corner and saw his son sitting there dressed in rags, begging for his food. And he asked him, why are you doing this? You don't have to do this anymore. You're my son. So often we are that child. God saw us in the corner, in rags, depraved in our sin, without hope. And he adopted us into his family. And yet so often we forget that we are his children. And we return to the corner of sin. Clothe ourselves in rags again. We don't have to. We don't have to fear. We don't have to live in that. Because we are his children. As we'll see later in the chapter, this means that you are intensely loved by God. God chose you to be his child. And so we come to God and we cry, Abba. Father. Here Paul uses the Hebrew word for daddy, Abba. It's the Hebrew word that simply today we would say daddy. And he uses the Greek translation for father. He does this to emphasize this relationship. God is your dad. God is your father, the one who cares intensely for you. One man put it this way. Although I be oppressed with anguish and terror on every side and seem to be forsaken and utterly cast away from thy presence, yet I am your child and you are my father for Christ's sake. I am beloved because of the beloved. Wherefore, this little word father, conceived effectually in the heart, passes all the eloquence of all the rhetoricians that ever We're in the world. As you face the anxieties of life, God will always take care of you because he's your father. God will never leave you or forsake you. He's your protector. He's your teacher. He's your provider. And this was no backup plan. 
This was God's eternal plan from eternity past that God chose you to be his child. Galatians 4 verse 4 says, When the fullness of time, the correct time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That brings us to this next amazing aspect of being God's children is that we have been made rightful heirs. Note verse 16, Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In Ephesians 1, we're told in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In Ephesians 1.3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. But perhaps the penultimate text on our inheritance in Christ is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. So turn over there very quickly. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Here Peter tells us this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, Excuse me. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have... An eternal inheritance. As, as children of the king, we stand to inherit from the king. But what does this inheritance entail? The New Testament regularly uses inheritance not only to refer to an earthly inheritance, but also to a believer's share in the heavenly kingdom. Or as our heavenly reward. So, the inheritance is our portion in what is coming. The new heaven and the new earth and all its blessings. You see, you have a part in the coming kingdom. You have a part in the eternal plan of God. Your inheritance is to be part of the eternal paradise where there's no sin, no sorrow, no pain. Only joy and happiness in the presence of God for all eternity. The point is that while Christians may suffer in this age and have no future here, there is now awaiting for the faithful reward a sure and steady inheritance, a reward far better than any earthly land and far more lasting. In the Old Testament, the concept of the inheritance is the land of God promised to his people. And we have a future land coming for us. 
a kingdom whose builder and maker is God. We also see in the New Testament, that's another way of saying that believers will receive eternal life. That death is not the end. And Peter notes several important characteristics of this inheritance. First, this inheritance is imperishable. It won't pass away. It can't be taken away. It is untouched by death. All earthly possessions ultimately decay and will be destroyed. Stuff breaks. Stuff wears out. Stuff ages. You don't believe so? Just give your wedding album, give your yearbooks to your kids. See their reaction. Stuff fades away. But this eternal inheritance will not decay. It will not fail. It is untouched by inflation. It is untouched by any kind of financial ruin. It will not die. It's eternal. Second, Peter informs us that this inheritance is undefiled. It is unstained by evil. This is without question the most important aspect of this inheritance. Sin defiles everything it touches. Leviticus 11 informs us it defiled creation. Leviticus 13 informs us it defiled people. Numbers 19 informs us it defiles everything. Every hardship you face, every trial you go through, every sickness, every disease, every conflict, every relational problem is a result of sin. I want you to consider something. Even creation, as we'll see later in chapter 8, is impacted deeply by sin. And yet, how often do we look at creation and say, what an amazing God we serve. It still declares God's glory. We see the amazing sunset. We see the beautiful blossoming trees and flowers. We see the tranquility, the majesty, and even sometimes the wrath of the Great Lakes. And we cry, wow, God is amazing. And it's stained by sin. How much greater will it be when those things are not stained by sin? As spectacular as it is now, what's it going to be like in glory? That's a picture of your inheritance that's coming. Your 401k goes up and down and up and down. Your inheritance in heaven is steadfast, untouched. Sin cannot impact it. This morning, for many, we woke up and we began to consider what didn't hurt because the list of what hurt is much longer. In heaven, it'll be perfect. No more doctor's visits. No more health care. Perfection. Maybe this weekend with the beautiful weather you began to work on your home to repair all the things that had been broken over winter or that you had put off, to pull the weeds that have grown in the last few weeks, to trim things back, to help them look beautiful, all stained by sin. In heaven, perfect. 
It is undefiled. And third, this inheritance is unfading. It's a picture of a wilting flower impaired by time. But your inheritance is unimpaired by time. Time destroys most hope. Time helps us realize the world is broken. Life's tough. And then you die. But the passing of time only makes a Christian's hope that much more glorious. Life's tough. But then you die. And you're with Christ for all eternity. You see, your inheritance is unfading. Fourth, it is reserved. It's reserved for you. It's guarded. It's kept. It's taken care of. And in the form of this verb, it's called a perfect passive participle. It indicates a complete past activity by God with results that are still continuing in the present. In other words, it won't change. It's sitting at will call. You'll give your name, and they give you the inheritance, and it's not going away. God's kingdom's not like the airline that overbooked. They tell you, I'm sorry, we don't have enough volunteers, we're going to have to bump you to the next flight, too bad for you. It's not how God's kingdom works. It's reserved. It can't go away. The inheritance of the new covenant Christian is shown to be far superior to the earthly inheritance of this world. Even of the inheritance that the people of Israel had. They were given a land and they lost it. They went into exile. Later the Romans occupied it. And even while they possessed the land, it produced rewards that decayed. They suffered. But the rewards of God's glory are unfailing. For all eternity, it's waiting for you. And while sinners might destroy all that they have in this world, there's a reward no force on earth can touch. This inheritance should give us hope in the darkest of times because it is a sure thing. It's reserved for us. It's the strongest possible term that Peter could use. Nothing could take it away. And so you are secure. No matter what mistakes you make, no matter what sins you commit, You are not condemned, and God is proud of you. Finally, this inheritance is personal. He says it's reserved in heaven for you. What's interesting here is that Peter moves from a plural, third person, meaning a group, to a second person. Personal, you. The surprising switch to this you instead of us makes this reservation of this inheritance personal. God thought of you in eternity past. God adopted you. And God reserved this inheritance specifically for you. God takes a personal interest in you. The God of the universe watches over you, so you don't need to worry about tomorrow. Many of you have met Rob Wagner. 
Pastor Rob Wagner is pastor up in Brighton. He's preached here for me a few times. When we were in college together, we are in a situation where the college bill was due, and at that year in particular, he wasn't sure how he was going to pay for it. And we're sitting in his room that night as we talked about it being due the next day, and we weren't sure whether he'd be able to stay because he wasn't sure how he'd pay that bill. We made the comment that God owns everything. The psalmist says he owns the cattle on a thousand hill. We pray, God, if it's your will, maybe sell one of those cows and pay this bill. The next day, went to breakfast, was sitting there, and he came in. He sat down, and he said, Dave, you'll never guess what happened. So what happened? He said, God sold a cow. My bill's paid. This inheritance is reserved for you. Your father will take intense interest in your life and care for your every need. Because he's not some abstract deity that's somewhere out there that maybe will take an interest at some points. He's not some impersonal God that just kind of oversees things and maybe even takes a little bit of, of sadistic pleasure in making your life hard. God is your father. And because he's your father, everything that is his is yours and is your inheritance. And it means he cares intimately about you. So as you're sitting in that doctor's office and you're wondering, God, what are you doing? I don't enjoy this at all. Understand that you have an inheritance and a father who cares intimately about you that is working on your behalf. And he is not some inept father, some bumbling idiot of the modern sitcoms. He is the creator of the universe who spoke all things into existence and uphold all things by the word of his power. There is nothing God cannot do. That's your father. So rest in him. But this inheritance does come with a cost. Back in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, part of this inheritance, part of being children of God, means we are made participants in suffering and in glory. We think of 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So the world is really hostile to Christianity. Yep. Don't be shocked. It put Christ to death. What do you think it's going to do to the rest of us? Don't be surprised that the world hates you. Suffering can, will, and must happen as it prepares us for our eternal inheritance. It is through suffering that God's glory is shown greatly. We think of Paul in 1 Corinthians as he shares... I prayed to God three times that he would remove the thorn in the flesh. And three times God said, no. Paul's at his wit's end. He is suffering intensely. 
And he's crying out to God, God, take this away from me. It hurts. The picture is the thorn in the flesh. Intense pain that doesn't stop. And God said, no. But he didn't just stop there. He said, no, because my grace is sufficient for you. So Paul says, most gladly, therefore, will I glory, rejoice in my infirmity that the glory of God will rest upon me, that God will be made to look as good as he really is. When you rejoice and you act great, when things are going great, that's what everybody expects. Everything's going great. Even the world does that. But in the midst of intense suffering, in the midst of intense trial, when you point to your good father, And you tell the world, it's all good because my father's got it. And he's good. That's different. And it demonstrates the glory and goodness of your father. The glory and goodness of God. And we do this because we understand that there's something coming. And Christ pictures this for us. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told, Have this mind among yourselves, which is, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In Matthew 25, 26, and 27, relay this account where Jesus Jesus in the garden is crying to the Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Christ suffered intensely. And we see in chapters 26 and 27 the suffering that he went through as he was beaten and mocked and ridiculed and ultimately murdered by being hung on a cross. He suffered intensely, but... Paul goes on in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This morning we sung, It'll be worth it all when we see Jesus. See, the sufferings that you are facing will be worth it because glory is coming. Life's trials will seem minuscule and not pointless, but minuscule and, 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 and nothing to worry about because Christ is so great. You may suffer today, but glory's coming. See, salvation is an amazing reality. This reality means that we are not under condemnation before God. We're not guilty. Further, we can and do please God, and one day we will stand before him and hear him say, well done, because he adopted us as his children. This means you don't need to fear life or this world today. You don't need to live in guilt and shame over the past. Your past doesn't define you. Through salvation, 
you have an amazing and secure future. But this means you must live like a child today. We're called to put sin to death and live for Christ, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And that should impact the way you work. As you go to work this week, you are not working simply to pay the bills. You're not working simply because you have to. Rather, you're working in order to worship God and declare his glory. It should impact the way you interact with your family. Your family is not just a group of people you got stuck with. Your family is not something that is the most ultimate thing to you. It's not everything. Rather, your family is a gift from God to be shepherded towards his kingdom. This means it should impact the way you view your finances. The things of this world pass away and fail. Finances are necessary. We have to pay our bills with them, but your finances aren't yours. God entrusted everything to you to be used for him. They're not for you, they're for his kingdom. So if you recognize that you are his child and living for his kingdom and laying up treasure in heaven, it changes the way you use even your money. This should impact the way you view world events. We don't live in fear. Rather, all things are working towards the kingdom in our inheritance. So we don't live for this world because it will pass away. Kingdoms will rise and kingdoms will fall. But one kingdom remains forever. So live for that kingdom. This should impact the way you exercise faith. Sometimes God calls us to do things that don't make sense. Sometimes God's word asks us to do things and commands us to do things that are hard and are definitely countercultural. Are you more interested in this world or are you more interested in obeying God and the kingdom to come? See, salvation is an amazing thing. And when you recognize it, it changes your entire life and gives you hope and a future. Let me give you three so what's today. So we walk away, three things to think about. One, Don't let your past sins and mistakes define you. Find forgiveness at the cross. Everyone has a past. And because we're all sinners, everyone's past is marred by sin and baggage. But your past does not have to define your future. You can find forgiveness at the cross of Christ. There's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. So then number two. Seek to please God with everything you do. Make decisions based on heaven, not on yourself. Not simply what do I want or what do I feel or what will make me happy, but how will this advance God's kingdom and glorify him forever? Seek to please God with everything you do. And finally... Find peace and hope in the reality that God adopted you as his child. Find peace and hope in that. No matter what life brings your way, God's got it. He's your father. You can rest in him. He's in control. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to look at your word and the reminder that you adopted us as your children. Lord, we did not deserve it and we certainly did not earn it. And yet you bestowed on us every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have given us an eternal future and a hope. You have granted us to become citizens of your kingdom. You have made us heirs with Christ and given us an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away and that you have reserved in heaven for us. So Lord, help us to live for you. Help us to trust you and help us to obey you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.